Hey, we are in a season, we believe, of open doors here at the Crossing Church. And uh, we have some exciting news to announce that October the 1st, uh, for our church, we're going to do one service on October the 1st. And we are going to be opening the front doors of our church. Finally, we've been in this building project for over a year. But hey, I want you to plan with your family at 11 o'clock on on October the 1st to be here because we are going to celebrate all that God is doing. And we just believe that the, the door we're opening out front is, is really symbolic of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And that's that we believe we're under an open heaven right now, that God's moving. And uh, so that's why we've been in this series called Open Door. So hey, put that on your calendar, October the 1st, one service. We'll actually start the festivities that day about 1030 outside and then we'll kick off the service inside at 11. You don't want to miss it. It will be a monumental day in the history of the Crossing Church. So we have been in this series about open doors, and we've been studying the church in the book of Acts. And today we are going to continue that. And I'm going to be in Acts chapter 16, verse 19. And let me catch you up where we're at in Acts at this point. Paul and Silas have gone to the city of Philippi. It's a colony of Rome in the Macedonian region. They're there preaching the gospel. And there was a slave girl who happened to be possessed by a demonic spirit. And she was being used by her owners uh, to tell people's fortunes so they can make money. So, but Paul exercised the demon, rebuked the demon out of this lady. She loses her powers to consult with the spirits. And that's where we pick up in Acts 16, 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate for customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrate tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened." and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Today, I want to speak to you about praise that opens doors. What opens doors? If anything opens doors, it is praise from a sincere heart that will open doors. That's what happened here in Paul and Silas. They literally had doors open because of the praise that they let forth. There's something about when God's people will just praise his name. It changes things. It shifts atmospheres. It can shift situations. There is a power in praise, and praise will open doors. I want to give you uh, seven things today. So I got to hurry, but seven things, seven postures of praise. You know, the Bible talks a lot about praise and praising God, and there are different postures that the Bible commands us to do. The Bible commands us to lift our hands. The Bible commands us to bow. The Bible commands us to lift up a shout. These are 
postures of praise. And I, I guess I just want to show you today that praise involves your whole body. You can't sit there with your arms folded and keep your mouth shut. That is not praise. You can't think about praise. You can't meditate about praise. You have to let it out. There is a physical posture that must take place in our bodies for praise. So I want to give you seven postures of praise and how they open doors. The first one, the first posture is the bow, the bow. Psalm 95, six through seven says, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice. So the first posture of worship that I want to talk to you today is about bowing. What does it mean to bow? Why does the Bible tell us to bow? When we bow before God, what we're telling the Lord is, you have my reverence, you have my service, you have my obedience. Bowing is about submission. You're saying, I am submitting. It's an act showing you're submitting your life to God. Okay, so recently on the way to school, my daughter was having a three-year-old moment, Phoebe. She wanted her milk, all right? And she is throwing a fit to have her milk in the car. She loves to drink milk. And by the way, at the Harris residence, we drink whole milk, none of this almond stuff, all right? Give me 100% beef milk from a cow, whole milk, all right? So she is wanting her milk in the car and she is throwing a fit. I'm saying, I mean, she's leaning forward, straining forward, just screaming. And I, and I said, Phoebe, when you calm down, and you lean all the way back in your seat, lean all the way back, then you can have your milk. She fought it. Finally, she calms down. She quits crying, and she leans back in her seat, but she keeps her little shoulders off the back of the car seat. And this is what she tells me. She says, I'm not all the way back. And she, she was not going to submit to what I was telling her to do. She, she went 90% of the way, but she kept that last 10% for herself. And she said, I'm not all the way back. And you know what? Sometimes that's what we do with the Lord. We give the Lord a halfway bow. We hold back the last 10% for what we want, and we aren't truly submitted to God. But I want to tell you, a bow in worship, a life completely bowed down in worship, is a life that will open up the doors of heaven. The Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 6 that three times a day, Daniel was in, a, 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 was in his home in Babylon, which was far away from Jerusalem in the temple, but three times a day in this godless culture where it was actually illegal to bow and pray, Daniel would bow. It says he would prostrate himself before the Lord in complete submission, and three times every day he would call upon the name of the Lord. You want to know what? Daniel shook an entire empire. Daniel's bow shook the Babylonian nation. When Daniel bowed low, a portal of God's glory was opened up over the very center of Babylon, which was the center of witchcraft and astrology and sorcery, but God moved in the Babylonian empire because one man would bow. In 1940, there's a professor of Wheaton College named Professor J. Edwin. He led a group of theology students to England where they would visit sites of great revival. 
One of the places they went and stopped at was the Epworth Rectory. This is now the museum for John Wesley. It's actually the home of John Wesley, who was the great reformer who led a wave of spiritual renewal in the 1700s, founded the Methodist movement. But Wesley was a man of prayer, and he would often by his bedside, he would pray for revival to sweep through England, to sweep through the American colonies. And actually, right next to Wesley's bed, you can see there are two indentions in the carpet from where his knees would be at, where he would spend hours praying and bowing before the Lord. And you know what? Heaven broke out. Revival broke out. A great awakening broke out in the American colonies. And so this professor in the 40s had brought students from Wheaton College, and the tour is over. And after Professor Orr is back on the bus, he's doing a head count, and he's missing one student. There's one student that's gone, and he goes back into John Wesley's home, and he finds this student kneeling down on John, where John Wesley had put his knees. He put, this student put his knees, and, and he was saying, do it again, Lord, do it again. Would you do it with me? Would you send a revival? And Professor Orr placed a hand on the young man's shoulder and said, Billy, it's time to leave. It's time to go. It was Billy Graham. Billy Graham had put his knees where John Wesley had put his knees in the floor and he bowed. And when John Wesley bowed, the world was shook. When Billy Graham bowed, the world was shook. When Daniel bowed, the world was shook. There is something about a life bowed down. When we bow, heaven will come near. A portal will be open. God's glory will come. When we bow, it will open doors. Are you bowing today in worship? Here's the next one. Now, this one might be a little different, but this is the kiss. First, we have the bow. Now we have the kiss. Psalm 2.10 says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The bow is about reverence and submission. The kiss is about affection and loyalty. A huge part of worshiping God is about our affections. Your affections are your appetites, what you hunger for, what you long for. A huge part of worshiping and praising God is delighting in Him, right? Our heart or our affections need to be stirred towards God. Some people think that serving God starts out as a duty. It starts out as a have to, but then it will give way to delight, a want to. That you start out having to do some things, but then eventually you'll want to do those things. And I think there is actually truth to that. There are seasons where we obey God even when we aren't feeling it, right? The motto is, if you stay disciplined long enough, then you'll begin to crave it over time. Some people say, fake it until you make it. I get all that. Grin and bear it for a little while. Sometimes that's life. Sometimes we have to do that. But the truth is, God wants your kiss. He wants your affections. He wants your heart to be stirred towards him. And obedience is really the result of delight, not the other way around. Obedience should be the result of delight, not delight comes because we obeyed first, all right? Uh, Conrad Schaefer says this, an individual is formed by what one loves and reflects on continually. What delights us invades us. Isn't that so true? Whatever you delight in, 
That's where your mind's gonna go. That's where your heart is gonna go. That's what you're gonna give your time to. It's just a natural thing. Whatever we take delight in is what we're gonna go after in life. That can be good things, that can be bad things. But when we delight in the Lord, when we make him the delight of our heart, oh, that is that will lead to a praise that opens up doors. You know, when the children of Israel experienced God's miraculous deliverance for Egypt, you know what the first thing they did was? When they crossed the Red Sea and they came out on the other side, the Bible says that Miriam and the women grabbed some tambourines and they were dancing and praising God. They threw a big old party and they sang a song of deliverance. It was a joyous occasion of praise and dance. Well, where did that praise come from? That praise and that delight didn't come from obedience, but it came from God's goodness, his salvation. He had saved them from their enemies. And then later, God gave them a law to obey. The law came later. The law came after they had already delighted in the Lord. The joy and the delight came first. Then the obedience came later. When we realize all that we have in Christ, when we realize where we could be today, when we realize what he has saved us from, it should stir the affections within our soul and we should kiss the sun. God is not interested today in affectionless praise, but he wants not just our lips, but our hearts. That's why Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Meaning they come to church and they're just reading words off of a page. It's coming from their head and from their mouth, but it's not coming from their heart. God wants your heart. He wants your affection. And when we are affectionate towards God and he has stirred us in our affections, man, that will lead to open doors. Here's the third one, sacrifice, sacrifice. This is about priority, okay? Bowing is about submission and reverence. Kiss is about affection. Sacrifice is about priority, First Chronicles 16, 29 says, give to the Lord God what he deserves. Bring your offering and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all of his holy splendor. I love to talk about this. In the Old Testament, when an Israelite would appear before the Lord, when they would come to the temple, you see, no one ever came to the temple empty-handed. You did not show up to the temple to worship God without a sacrifice. All worship needed a sacrifice. You always came with an offering. And why, and why do you think church exists? Why do you think we gathered today on a Sunday? What do you think the primary objective of the church is? Now, there's many good things we could do, and there's many things we're called to do. But you want to know why I believe the primary reason for church is? The primary reason we gather on Sundays is to worship God, to praise him. This is his house. This is what we've come to do is to worship and honor him and put him first in our lives again. And worship can't happen without an offering, without a sacrifice. I like this quote from Philip Yancey. He says, the church exists primarily not to provide entertainment, or to encourage vulnerability, or to build self-esteem, or to facilitate friendships, 
but to worship God. If it fails in that, it fails. I have learned that ministers, the music, the sacraments, and other trappings of worship are mere promptings to support the ultimate goal of getting worshipers in touch with God. If I ever doubt this fact, I go back to the Old Testament, which devoted nearly as much space to the specifications for worship in the tabernacle and the temple as the New Testament devotes to the life of Christ. Taken as a whole, the Bible clearly puts the emphasis on what pleases God, the point of worship after all. To worship, says Walter Wink, is to remember who owns the house. Man, that quote right there fires me up. That is a good quote. The church is here primarily to lift up praises, to give a sacrifice and an offering to God. That's why we're here. This is God's house. It's all about him. And we came to bring a sacrifice. And this is where we get off base in our culture because if we're not careful, we will come to church only to receive. There's nothing wrong with receiving in church. But if you come to church only to receive and you didn't bring anything to give, then you have become a consumer. And you know what happens to consumers? Consumers quickly turn into critics because consumers think that they're the customer and the customer's always right. And they think the organization exists for them. Actually, biblically speaking, the church exists for God. We came not to see what we could get, but we came to give him what belongs to him. We came to bring a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging that name, which is above every other name. Did you come with an offering today? Did you show up to the temple empty-handed or did you come to bring him something, a costly offering of praise and worship? That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Psalm 104 says this, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. In the New Testament, we see the word thanksgiving. It's used over 15 times. Uh, the word give thanks. In Greek, it's the word eucharisteo. And that's a compound word, okay? You got you, which describes something that's good or well, denotes a general good disposition or feeling about something. And then the word charistia, which comes from the word charis, is the word for grace. So when you put eucharistia together, uh, Rick Renner says this, it refers to the wonderful feelings and good sentiments that freely flow up out of a heart in response to something or someone. This is a picture of one who feels something so profound, something so wonderful that he can't contain what he feels and it just flows out of his heart like a river, a river of thanksgiving. I have found that thanksgiving, I, 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 like, I like what Rick Renner says. It is something that flows out of our hearts that when, you, when a, a spirit of thanksgiving comes out of you, man, it just, it will bubble up and flow out of you. But here's what I found to be true about Thanksgiving is sometimes you got to prime that pump <laughs> before it really begins to flow or bubble out. All right. And then once you get it going, then it can really begin to flow. I have found that the more thankful I am, the more I realize what I have to thank him about. But sometimes I got to prime that pump 
It's like, you know, if you have a weed eater or a leaf blower at home, there's that little button on the side and you have to pump it about a dozen times and then you crank it up. What are you doing? You're building the fuel pressure back up in the system. Then it's ready to crank. And honestly, this is how Thanksgiving, I think, works. And this is how I often do it. I actually like to practice Thanksgiving. I like to think of actual five things that I can thank God for. I write them down on a piece of paper. And it's amazing how quickly five things, when I write them down and sincerely thank God for them, can turn into 10 things, can turn into 15 things. And before you know it, it just starts bubbling like a river out of you. Now, I'm a pastor. We know that. But can I tell you, there's times when I come to pray and I don't feel a thing. In fact, this week, I've had times of prayer when I walked into the prayer room, zero, nada, nothing. I felt very human. <laughs> I felt nothing supernatural. I felt, um, I felt overwhelmed. I felt my mind's in a thousand places. But when I stop for a moment and I begin to write down some things that I'm thankful for, it's surprising what happens to your spirit. That crusty, old, dry spirit, it begins to feel like a fresh rain. Something breaks within me. And then I begin to thank God. Man, you should just begin to thank God for some things in your life. Let me tell you some things I thank God for. I thank God that I know the name of Jesus. There's two billion people in the world that have never heard the name of Jesus. You should be thankful. You live somewhere where you have heard the name of Jesus before. I thank God that I'm alive. I'm, I can walk. I'm healthy. I'm breathing today. I thank God for the crossing church. I thank God for you. I thank him for the community that I'm a part of. I thank God for the future, where he's taking us, what he's doing. I thank God for a godly heritage. I had parents that taught me about the Lord and brought me to church. I don't know what you can be thankful for today, but I promise you, you can find five things. And when you prime that pump, just watch what it does to the spirit on the inside of you. Thanksgiving will open doors. I'm telling you, it'll open doors. When one of your kids comes to you and you've done something for them or you bless somebody and they come back and they have a thankful heart, doesn't that make you want to bless them again? When you see someone who's truly thankful and they're overwhelmed with thanksgiving, it makes you just want to keep blessing that person. On the other hand, a stingy person who never says thank you, an entitled person who never says thank you, that will stop a door. That will close a door. But when somebody will lift up thanksgiving to God, I believe it opens doors for them. Here's number five, lifted hands. Lifted hands. The Bible tells us over and over again to lift our hands. First Timothy 2.8 says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. One of the main characteristics in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament when it comes to praise is the lifting of our hands. It's everywhere. It's in the Psalms. Why do we lift our hands? Let me give you a few reasons today. You know, I remember when there was a person that I looked up to spiritually was talking about how they learned to pray. When this man was young in the Lord, he wanted to learn to be close to God. So he asked his pastor, what should I do to be close to God. His pastor told him, go and get your favorite worship tape. Back then it was a tape, wasn't even a CD yet. It was a tape, if you remember that, a cassette tape. And he said, uh, go get your favorite worship leader. And for him at that time, it was Keith Green. Does anybody remember Keith Green back in the 70s? 
Come on, that guy was good. He says, go to your room, put Keith Green on. And this is what he said. He said, lift your hands until God comes and picks you up. Think about that. Lift your hands until God comes and picks you up. I think about my own children. I think about Phoebe, my three-year-old, when I pick her up from daycare after a long day. When I walk in the room, what does she normally do? She normally runs to me and she normally lifts her hands up. What is she saying? She's saying, Daddy, would you pick me up? When we come to God and we lift our hands, one of the things we're telling our Father in heaven is pick us up. Lord, would you lift us up to where you are? I'm so glad we have a God that will pick us up and bring us up to where he is. Yes, he comes down low, but when he comes down low, I believe he bends low to pick us up, to give us a heavenly perspective. This is why we lift our hands. Another reason you might lift your hands is if someone's pointing a gun at you, what would you do? You lift your hands. Why? It's a sign of surrender. You're saying, I, I have nothing to hide. I'm not running. Whatever you're asking me to do, I'll do it. This is the lifting of the hands. This is what we say to God. When we lift our hands, we're saying, God, we have nothing. We're not hiding anything. We're surrendering to you today. It's a sign of surrender. But it's also a sign and a posture of receiving. I remember growing up and playing sports. One of the things you always had to do, I wasn't a football player, but I played baseball and I played basketball. But one of the things you always had to do in sports, especially basketball, is you always had to have your hands like this. You always had to have them ready. Why? Because if someone's throwing a pass to you, you gotta be ready to receive it. Yeah, uh, it this is a posture of ready to receive. And our posture matters. Do you know that what your body communicates? Most communication experts say anywhere from 70% to 93% of all communication is nonverbal, meaning your body posture, what you're doing with your body. The posture of your body matters. And when we lift our hands, we're saying, God, we're open to receive whatever you have for us to do. You know what I see people in church sometimes with their hands in their pockets and their hands folded and they're just looking around the room, more than likely that person will receive nothing from God that day. Now, God is all powerful. He can get through to anybody, but more than likely that person will not receive. Why? Because they're not in a posture to receive. They're communicating. They're not communicating to God that they wanna receive. What they're communi communicating is I'm closed off. I don't wanna receive. I don't need what you have. No, but when we lift our hands, when we open them up to God, we are in a posture to receive. Here's my last one about lifted hands. Bob Sorge talks about this. I thought it was really super interesting. In the tabernacle, the Lord told Moses that he would speak to him from the mercy seat. This is where Moses would hear the voice of the Lord. What surrounded the mercy seat, if you remember, which was over the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim. It says, and their wings were spread out over the mercy seat and they were touching one another. They would stretch out their wings. And when we stretch out our arms, it's like those two cherubim who were stretching out their wings. The mercy seat was the throne of God on the earth. It was when, and it's when we stretch out our arms, it's as if we're touching the very throne of God. And actually, it's as if we're actually building a throne for God. The Bible says that God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. So when we stretch out our arms, we're building that place where God can come and rest and meet with us and speak 
to us when we lift up our hands. Here's number six. Now this is just praise in itself. Praise. What does it mean to praise? Praise is when you open your mouth and you give God credit, either for the things he's done or just for who he is. But you gotta open your mouth. Psalm 66, eight says this. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Now there's some words that stick out to me right there. Sound and heard. Praise is meant to be heard. Praise, I'll say it again, is meant to be heard. Now there is a biblical discipline of meditation. There is a biblical discipline of silence. There's a time to be silent. There's a time to just think and listen and hear. But then there is a time to praise and to shout from the rooftops. Praise must be heard. Could you imagine if you never praised or told your family that you love them? You think they would be upset? Of course they would be upset. And you can't say, well, I love you all the time in my head. I think about you all the time in my thoughts. At some point, the thoughts in your head have to be verbalized and spoken out. And it's the same with our praise for God. We must open our mouths. We must let out a praise. And actually, praise is not praised until it's both vocalized and visible. Praise, you have not praised the Lord until it's been vocalized. That means it's audible and until it's visible, until it's with your body, until you've lifted your hands, until you've bowed down, until you've lifted your voice, until you're singing a song. If it's not vocalized and it's not visible, then it's not praise. The Hebrew word for hallelujah is hallel. It means to cry aloud or to break out into a cry, especially a cry of joy. Listen to me. You got to open your mouth. You got to praise. You got to lift your hands. You got to bow down. You got to sing. It's when it's vocalized and then our body is doing what our mouth is saying. That's when heaven is open. Paul and Silas were sitting in that prison. They weren't thinking about God. They were praying and they were singing. And then the doors were open. It was a praise that opened doors. And you think, man, is God an egomaniac? Is God a narcissist? Does he just need us to worship him? Or he just need like God needs affirmation today? Like he's not feeling good. And if we could just give God a little affirmation, then it would really make his day. And listen, God is not a narcissist. He's not an egomaniac. God doesn't need you to worship him. God doesn't need you to praise him. God needs you to praise him for you, not for him. Whether you praise him or not, whether you lift your hands or not, whether you sing or not will not change the fact that he is God Almighty today. Praising God doesn't change him. It changes us. We need to praise God. Go back to the beginning. You remember Satan and how he tricks Eve. Satan convinces Eve that God was really not as good as she had originally thought he was. Satan convinces Eve that God was holding something back from her, that God was actually stopping Eve from being her true self. And if she would just take matters into her own hands, she could self-actualize and become the, the autonomous self and actually be on the same level as God himself. And so Satan got Eve to take her mind off the goodness of God. 
and she lost sight that God was her father. She lost sight that God was a good father who loved her and wanted the best for her. But you see, when Eve lost sight of God as father, she also lost her own identity in that as well. Because if God is not her father, that means she is not a daughter. And this is why praise and worship is so important. Because when we focus on God's goodness, when we vocalize and verbalize the greatness of God and the goodness of God, what we're doing is we're putting God in his proper place. And by very nature, when we put God in his proper place, it puts us in our proper place. You see, Eve started acting less than her identity, and we do the same thing. Romans tells us that when we refuse to honor God, when we refuse to be thankful, when we refuse to worship and praise God, that our minds actually become deluded and we become delusional. We start acting like the beasts of the field rather than acting like the sons and daughters who reign and rule with Christ. Because when God is father, then we are son and daughter. But when we make God less than that, we also become less ourselves. Praise is important. And here's how I want to finish today. I've talked about physical things that we do. We shout, we sing, we lift our hands, we bow, we kiss, all those things. But here's what really matters. Your whole life is worship. Your whole self is worship. Your whole self is praise. Romans 12:1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's go back to Paul and Silas where we started this message today. They're in prison. You know, here's the thing about Paul and Silas. They weren't in prison because they were doing something bad. They weren't in prison. They were in prison because they were serving Jesus. Their whole life was laid out before God. They were holding nothing back. Their life was a living sacrifice. They were on the altar. And when there is someone whose whole life is dedicated to God, when that person lifts up a praise, when that person lifts up a shout, that person's praise can shake a prison and it can open doors. Here's what I'm saying today. Anybody can walk up in a church on Sunday and they can come sit on the front row up here and they can shout and they can lift their hands and they could bow and they could go through all the motions. But if they don't have a life that's backing up what they're doing, then their shout will be hollow. Their praise will be hollow. God will know it. The demon powers will know it and it will do nothing and produce nothing. But a life that is laid down on the altar, a life that is wholly committed to God, when that life sings out a song, when that life lifts up a praise, when that life shouts unto God, I've seen it. I've been in the room with people who are living a life for God. And when they shout, the whole room changes. And when they lift up the name of the Lord, the whole room changes. Something has happened. A door has been opened. A portal has been opened. Why? Because someone who's a living sacrifice has walked in and they've given God praise and it has changed things and it has opened doors. We want to be a church where the doors of heaven are open. And I believe it with all my heart. Praise is something that opens doors. So when you come to the house of God, come with a heart that's ready. Come with a life that's laid down. And let's all get to what could happen 
if 700 people get in a room together that have all laid down their lives and they start praising God and lifting up the name of God, I'm telling you, whole cities could be shook to their very core. It happened in Acts. Why can't it happen now? Praise will open doors. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray that you would help us to be a people of praise. Lord, it matters. It matters that we open up our mouth. It matters that we bow. It matters that we lift our hands. These are not just suggestions, but they're commands. We are commanded to be a people of praise. And Lord, I believe our praise can shake the very heavenlies, just like Daniel did, just like Paul and Silas did. Let it happen in our day. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Church, we love you. October the 1st, okay? Listen, this is our soft opening for our people. We'll do a grand opening for the public later in October. But October 1st, it's a day to come together and celebrate. Make plans to be with us that morning. We'll see you soon.